Well, today we uh, encounter the most memorable character in all of Chaucer and one of the great characters of world literature, the uh, wife of Bath. <coughs> the density of her prologue is such that it's going to be impossible to do justice to it in one lecture or two lectures uh, even, but I want to try to introduce you to uh, some of the themes. I've already been asked before class if the wife of Bath can be considered a feminist. And the answer to that question is, she ever is to say, she is the center of a major industry of the feminists of uh, Chaucer, in which I play a catalytic role, at least the, the grain sand that annoys the oyster enough to make a beautiful pearl. Uh, my my doctoral student, uh, Carolyn Dinshaw, is um, the author of the standard book on this subject called Chaucer's Sexual Poetics, and you might want to take a look at that uh, some uh, some time. See that I am presenting a different point of view. There are many different points of view about uh, all these <coughs> all these characters. There are a couple other preliminary matters that you might bear in mind as we begin to look at the, the wife of Bath. One is the ancient idea of the so-called marriage group, the marriage group of tales. This was first talked about in the late 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, by the great Harvard scholar, George Lyman Kittredge, who noticed that many of the tales seem to be concerned with the theme of actual marriage, marriage between a man and a woman. The wife of Bath is much married. Her uh, prologue is devoted to her marital history. Its chief subject seems to be the power arrangements within a marriage, what she calls maestria, who has the mastery who is uh, wearing the pants, uh, so to speak, and some other tales that follow in this uh, line are, of course, the Clark's tale, the Clark's tale of Griselda, which is about a woman who makes herself an absolute match to her uh, tyrannical uh, husband. That's one of the tales. The merchant's tale is all about marriage. <coughs> And people who believe it is a marriage group think that the uh, tale that resolves all this in the best Goldilocks fashion uh, is the Franklin's tale, where each partner has an equal amount of maestria within the uh, wedding, uh, within the marriage uh, uh, bond. We will read the Franklin's tale, so you'll have a look at that. Oh, but already you might be a little if not from the rhetorical way in which I'm presenting marriage groups, at least from what I've already said about marriage uh, in the Canterbury Tales. For example, the Knight's Tales we've seen, you might call it a marriage story. It begins with a marriage, it ends with a marriage. It is quite clear that their marriage must have a symbolic meaning as pointing to a larger harmony uh, in uh, society and that kind of thing. Anyway, that's one way that people have approached <laughs> the wife of Bath. A way that I want you to think about it also is in term of terms of the fragment of the Canterbury Tales that we are now entering. I've already said a word or two about the fragment problem or phenomenon. We have the beginning of the poem, and we have the end of the lot in between that we don't know very much about, and therefore, it behooves us to look with special care when we find a moment like this one where you very clearly have a sequence of tales that are meant to go together. We just saw last time that there is a, an interesting and very surprising relationship between the Miller's tale and the Knight's tale, as grows out of that fragment. Well, we're now going to fragment three, or D, as the various editors uh, call it which includes the wife of Bath, the friar, and the sumner. And I think it will be as obvious to you as it is to me 
that there is a single overarching theme that unites all these tales. And you can call it the hermeneutical theme, if you want to be fancy, or the exegetical theme, the theme of interpretation of a text where there is some difference between what the letter seems to say on the surface and the inner spirit or meaning of it uh, as abstracted by a reader uh, or a hearer. The Sumner's Tale, for example, is about a typical medieval preacher who is boasting of his great abilities to find the spiritual meaning in a text. And he even says, you have no text, but ye shall find it in a manner glows. That's really ridiculous. He says, although I don't have a literal text to preach from, I'm able to give you the allegorical meaning of it. Now, you can't have an allegory if you don't have a literal text to go with it. And so you might suspect that there's something wrong with the friar in the Sumner's Tale. And is there ever? He says, for example, you've probably heard in the Gospel the uh, story of the... the uh, uh, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You've heard that? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That meant blessed are those that are poor in spirit, you poor simple-minded dupes. The spiritual meaning of this is blessed are us friars. Okay, so, and uh, so this is a very meretricious uh, application of the uh, that same tale. Uh, in that same tale, it turns out that this great spiritual exegete doesn't even understand the spiritual meaning of a fart. So one may worry about his uh, high degree of literalism. In the Friar's Tale, we're going to encounter a Sumner who is more literal-minded than the devil himself. The devil has to give him uh, a lesson in understanding the relationship between what he said, let's have lunch, you know, sort of thing, uh, and what is actually meant. But the wife of Bath starts out in an all-star way, as we'll look in a moment, with uh, certain scriptural passages, which she then starts talking about from an exegetical uh, point of view. Now, one third preliminary that I want to uh, mention, and this has to do with the idea of Egyptian gold. <laughs> Egyptian gold, that image that St. Augustine took out of the story of the Exodus and which meant for him the processes by which our modern, contemporary, for him, Christian literary culture could licitly use the great historical patrimony of the past, the great uh, Latin uh, poems of Ovid and Virgil. He likened them, you remember, to the gold and silver ornaments, which we are told in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel took with them, stole from Pharaoh when they left and set off to the promised land. And the interpretation he gave was that the gold was the wisdom of the ancients, the silver, the beautiful rhetoric in which it had been expressed. Well, if ever there was a tale made out of Egyptian gold, we've already seen it in the Knight's Tale. Here you have a fully classical tale set in pre-Christian times, but which seems always to be pointing in the direction of some kind of Christian moral. If you didn't see it there, you certainly saw it in the consolation of philosophy of Boethius, where Boethius's entire strategy seems to be to try to reduce the message of the Gospels to uh, ancient classical philosophy without ever invoking the Bible, except if he does so by mistake. In an earlier lecture, I mentioned an obscure work, but one free medieval kid learned, sat down to learn how to read Latin. It was called the Eclogue of Theodulus, and it was a Carolingian fiction which presented a dialogue, that's what an eclogue is, where a couple of goat herds are talking to each other. If you've read any Virgil, you know what it's about. This one is fairly easy to understand because the two characters who have the conversation are named Aletheia, which means truth, 
in Greek, and soistis, which means falsehood in Greek. In Greek. So you have a uh, dialogue between truth and falsehood. Falsehood, it's a very beautiful, very elegant poem. The purpose of this poem is to teach kids all the hard things that they're going to encounter in mythographic poetry when they're reading Latin. So Soistis says, let me tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a fantastic story. It's about how the, the uh, giants revolted against the gods and stormed Mount Parnassus. You know? And Truth says, well, that's a pretty good story, but you ain't heard nothing yet. Let me tell you how people built a Tower of Babel and how God punished their pride by confusing their languages. You have about 50 parallel episodes, one from a pagan text, one from a Christian uh, text. And the commentary on this work, the commentary on the Eclogue of Theodulus, makes this point, medieval commentary, that is, say, the cliff notes of the Middle Ages. This is what you ought to be able to get out of it. This book, the purpose of this poem, is not to dissuade you from reading classical poetry, but rather to see that in using it, you can't use it as a basis of truth. What you need for truth is to bring together with it something from the Bible. So this is going to be a pattern that we very frequently see, and I'm going to show you how you get it in the most brilliant possible way with regard to the wife of Bath, where you have a theme that is taken from classical literature and a theme taken from sacred literature, that is to say from the Bible, and these two strands are woven into a single stout cord that you can't even see uh, as it were the individual parts of. But let's go back and take a look at <coughs> the wife of Bath as she is described on pages 30 and 31. It's always a good idea to reread the description of these pilgrims as you enter their tale. A good weep was there of Basita Bath, and, but some death and scath. There was a good, there was a, the word weep, remember, doesn't mean wife. She is a wife. <laughs> She's a wife many times over. But the word weep in Middle English means woman. It has come to mean wife for the obvious reason that in earlier society, the role that most women fulfilled was the role of being a wife. There was, a, a good weep was there of Besida Bath. Now, I notice, you know, Chaucer doesn't use any uh, unnecessary language. She doesn't come from Bath. She comes from Besida Bath, from near Bath. And she was Sumdale deaf, and that was scaff. She was a little bit deaf, and that was too bad. Now, how do we know that she was a little bit deaf? We don't know. I mean, she seems to have fine conversations with uh, everybody, carries on an animated argument with a partner and all this uh, kind of thing. When we get to the end of her prologue, however, she relates a knockdown, drag-out fight that she had with her husband, and he boxed her so hard on the ear that she fell down. That would have given you at least the literal possibility that this is where her deafness comes from. But as I just told you, she doesn't really seem to have any literal deafness. My suggestion to you when we get into this poem is going to be that the deafness has to be metaphoric and it has to do with the way that she cannot hear what the Bible is actually saying. That is, you know, what Jesus says, you know, let those who have ears to hear, hear. Well, unfortunately, she doesn't quite, I think, get that right. A good weep was there of Besita Bath, but that was some Dale Depp, and that was of cloth mocking. She had a switch in haunt. She passed him of Ypres and of Gaunt, where... Uh, Mr. Vanderelf comes from, the low countries of, of Belgium, the, the great weaving center of the uh, middle, uh, middle Ages. That's where all the Flemings came from. My name, Fleming, is a rich name. It's a name they gave to all the people who came to the British Isles, most of whom who were weavers. And of course, they had names like Vanderelf and so on, but they couldn't pronounce that, so they just called them 
or they, they called them all Flemings. Now, why is she a weaver? All sorts of good reasons for this, but one of them that I've already suggested, and I want you to think about now, is the past part of the Latin verb texere is texti. This doesn't work just with the wife of Bath. It works, you know, we've already heard something about Ariadne and Penelope doing her weaving and the story of the rape of Salama. All these relate to women who are weavers, but whose textile in some way is co-equal with the narrative, don't you think? Now, the wife of Bath is one of the greatest makers of text that you will ever see. Once you see that the literal meaning of a text is a web, a weaving, a bringing together of many different verbal strands. Now, who would see this? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that every hearing this poem for the first time in Chaucer's audience would have picked this up, but the smarter ones would. And by the time you're halfway through the tale and you see the way that some of it is going, I think you would uh, realize that. A good week was there of the feet of Bath, and Shay was some well, some tale deaf, and that was Jaff. What is Bath? Some of you will have read 18th century literature, or I hope some of you have read the novels of Jane Austen, many of which feature the small city of Bath in the southwest of England. <coughs> it was a great social center uh, in, uh, Georgian, uh, in Georgian times. Why was it called Bath? It was called Bath because there were natural wells or springs there. The word Bath in, in Old English really means any body of water. It can mean the ocean, for example. Uh, the ocean is sometimes called the whale's bath. That's a, a kenning uh, for uh, that. It's uh, down in the southwest of England. There's another town called Wells. There is a diocese, as a matter of fact, of Bath and Wells. Now, what I'm trying to get you to see is that a bath is the same thing as a well. And this is going to have some significance uh, in uh, just a moment. So she lives in suburban Bath. She's a great uh, cloth maker. Uh, in all the parish weeps, and was there known that to the offering before her should have gone, and if there did certain so wrath with Shay, that Shay was out of all a charite. You don't have to be a genius to see the irony in those lines. I'm trying to make certain. Damn it! If I don't make it before somebody else, I'm out of charity. This is the word charity we use. We use it as the word the gift that you give to the poor, but it really means Christian love. There's something wrong uh, here with the, uh, with the wife of Bath. Then you've got some typical anti-feminism about how the fancy clothes she wears, her, her, uh, her head, uh, her, her hat weighs 10 pounds and uh, so on. Her hosen were in fiend scarlet red, full straighty tade, uh, and shows full moist and new. Bold was her face and fair and red of hue. She was a worthy woman all her leaf. Husbands at church door, she had a thief. Now, that you got married in the Middle Ages, not in the church building, but at the exterior door. Usually it was a porch down at the end of a long alleyway into the churchyard. Not to mention, then another one of his great uh, uh, lines, not to mention other company in use, but thereof made it take it, but not new. We're not going to mention She's been married five times, and she had a lot of extracurricular uh, activities uh, as well, but we won't mention them. Now, she is the champion uh, pilgrimage-goer on the whole pilgrimage. And in this, I want you to see that she has to be closely related to the pardoner. I'll show you this textually in just a moment, but just think for a moment. The pardoner is a kind of walking reliquary, right? Uh, he has this great chest or bag or whatever full of relics. The aim of this pilgrimage is to visit the famous relics of St. Thomas of Becket down in, uh, in Canterbury. Well, she's been around. Now, uh, she, she, three said she'd been at Jerusalem. That's incredible. I mean, it's literally incredible uh, for you know, an ordinary bourgeois woman from England to make three pilgrimages but it's no more incredible than the 
battle you could possibly fight at. This is the way Chaucer does it. Three said she'd been at, uh, at, uh, at uh, Jerusalem. She had a posse many a strong to stream. At Roma had she been. At, at Bologna. At Galles. At St. John. At, at Colonia. At the shrine of St. Uh, James of Compostela in northern Spain and Galicia to this very day is one of the great pilgrimages of Christendom. And in the Middle Ages, after Jerusalem and Rome, which Jerusalem is the... Is the uh, pilgrimage par excellence. Rome, where the original martyrs were buried, Peter and Paul, the founders of the church, that's the second best place. The third most famous pilgrimage in, in all of Europe was at Galicia, at, at, at St. James of Compostela in northern Spain. That is the one, I've mentioned this before, the simple scallop shell. Read in Hamlet of a pilgrim with his cockle hat if you have a cockle shell uh, on your hat, it's the image of being a pilgrim. You see this in medieval art. It is either the sign of St. James himself or the sign of a, uh, of a uh, pilgrim. <coughs> well, what about Cologne? That's Cologne in Germany. And why would you go there? Well, there were two wonderful pilgrimages you could go to in Cologne. One was the Three Kings. The three kings of Ori and Tar, you know, those three kings. Well, they ended up, for some reason, buried in Cologne, the Magi, so you could visit them. But listen, the one that the wife of Bath would have been absolutely fascinated by was the shrine, get ready for it, of the 11,000 virgins. 11,000 virgins! Try to conceive that many virgins. It's sort of, sort of unbelievable. Uh, and this one was simply a typographical error, actually. There were 11 virgins, and that was probably stretching it even, even there. But this thing was written like this, and if you put that, that means 11. If you do it like this, that means 11,000. And it's very obvious that at some early day uh, in a manuscript uh, transmission, uh, we greatly increased the number of virgins from 11 to 11,000. But that the wife of Bath, who is the least virginal uh, female that you're ever going to encounter, would be interested in the 11,000 virgins, seems to me, um, it seems to me pretty, pretty good. And if you don't get it uh, with the illusion, surely you get it in lines 470, 467. She could a mutual of wandering be the way. She knew a lot about wandering by the wayside. <laughs> yeah, well, both literally. Uh, and m metaphorically, now it's it's gentle. I wouldn't say that this is terribly harsh satire, but it's very hard to make her a feminist uh, heroine or any other kind of uh, heroine. Yet toast she was, as Sotheby for to say, upon an ambler easily she sat, he wimpled well, and on her head a hat as broad as a buckle or a, or a tars. A foot mantel about her hip as large, and on her fate a pair of spore sharpa in fellowship well could she laugh and carpa of remedies of love she knew canoe partanta or she could of that art the old uh, donta now where do these furs come from boy those are the you know you maybe a knight a fancy knight in a car they're a rather cruel device that writers use to cut into the flanks of horses to make them behave and ride faster and so on. Well, there was a famous uh, female spur-bearer that provides one of the cherry trees or hatchets for this one. This of the lay of Aristotle, <laughs> one of the great lays of history. The word L-A-I means a, a poem. Uh, or a, a song, and it goes like this, that Aristotle was up in a tower. This tower overlooked a garden. Have you ever seen anything like this anywhere in your life before? He was busy doing some very noble and uh, high-minded thing, like writing the Nicomachean Ethics, when he looked out the window. And you know what you always see when you look out a window of a tower down into a garden. He saw Swiss Wenchen. <laughs> so he, th th this story, incidentally, is very widespread 
in literature and also especially in misericord carvings, which is a strange place uh, to find it. These monks, you know, in, in the chancel as they're praying and so on, they do it hour after hour after hour, and so they got kind of tired, and they built these little half benches that you could kind of put your rear end against that would kind of hold you up a little bit, and they called them misericords, meaning we're having mercy on these people who, you know, are having to do all this, all this praying. On the underside of these things, you quite often have carvings. Sometimes they're religious, but very often they're secular as well. And one of them is this uh, picture that I'm going to tell you about now. So he hot puts it down from the tower, and he goes up to the Witwentia, and he says, oh, hey, uh, you know, like, do you come here often? You know, this, this, this kind of thing. And uh, she says, uh, my name is Phyllis. Uh, what, what, well, I'm Aristotle, the world's uh, smartest man. Uh, he says, geez. Would you be my friend? And Phyllis uh, thought, gee, I'd love to be friends with Aristotle, the world's uh, smartest man. But first, I want you to play a game. Oh? Play a game? He says, I want you to get down on your hands and knees and pretend that you are my horse and I'm going to ride you. And uh, so uh, he's looking over his shoulder to make sure Plato isn't looking. And it's, it's a pretty embarrassing thing. He does this, and she jumps up on his back and pulls out a pair of spurs and starts kicking him. He says, you stupid, dirty old man. Even though you're the smartest man in the world, you can't overcome lust. Now, this is the big thing about lust in the Middle Ages. It's not actually anywhere on the charts the way it is in the 20th and 21st centuries as sort of being obsessing everybody. As you notice in Dante's Inferno, it's barely in hell. It's only in the fifth canto. It's, it'll damn you forever, so it's, it is uh, uh, bad enough. But the thing about it is it is absolutely universal. Uh, and people of all races, all ages, look at Adam. He fell on account of Eve. Look at uh, Samson, world's strongest man. He fell on account of Delilah. Look at Solomon, world's wisest man. He fell on account of 10,000 concubines, which get mentioned several times by the, uh, by, by the wife of Bath. So that is where I think her, her spurs, uh, her, her spurs uh, come from. Uh, but uh, Remedies of Love, line 476, <coughs> That uh, is about as subtle and uh, anonymous as, say, Midsummer Night's Dream. That is, it is the title of a famous work, a work by Ovid, the Remedia Amoris, the Remedies of Love, which was the fourth and concluding book of his, um, of his uh, Art of Love. So that when Chaucer says, She could of that art the old Adonsa, she really knew all about the old dance. It's quite clear that she is, you know, he's not talking about the Virginia deal or this sort of dance, old, fallen, sensual humanity, cupidity, and that sure is the wife of that. So with that in mind, uh, that is this kind of being forewarned by the description in, in the general prologue, Let's take a look at her own prologue. Now this is one of two places in the Canterbury Tales, the other one being the Pardoner's prologue in Tale. It's one of two places where I would say the wind-up is more important than the delivery. That is to say, what the character says about herself or himself is really in preparation of telling the tale, is of more significance, perhaps, than even the tale itself. Certainly, there is an extraordinary disproportion in length between the Wife of Bath's prologue and uh, her, uh, and her uh, uh, tale. Well, <laughs> she's supposed to be a monoglot milliner of Bath, but she's the most learned such person you will ever find. 
experience, though non octorite, were in this world is ricked enough for me to spake of woe that is in Mariaja. We got another beautiful binary, and it's going to fit in with all our other binaries. We've actually seen this binary before on the T-shirt of Lady Philosophy, who, when she climbs down the 42-foot letter, has a T-shirt that says on it, Theta Pi. Theta standing for the theoretical branch of philosophy, uh, the pi standing for the practical branch of philosophy. Here, the binary is experience versus auctorite. The very word auctorite suggests this you know, Latin auctoritas, an author. What an author is, is somebody who is a theoretical expert on a subject. In the life of Bath's world, it would always be a man, and it would always be a clerical man, that is, somebody uh, within the clergy. And what she's saying is, I don't have to read any of the books by these guys, as you know, uh, uh, Susan Sontag called the Pope, or the old guy, you know, old guy wearing a bathrobe. I don't, or something like this. I don't need to read any of these books by old guys in bathrobes about my sex life uh, or about how terrible marriage is, because I know directly from my own experience. So she's saying, even if there were no books about this. Uh, I would know that marriage is a really bad scene. Now, this is just one of many paradoxes that you're going to run into with regard to the wife of Bath. She has been married five times, and she says, welcome the sixth. In fact, she seems to be on a cruise on this pilgrimage looking for a possible sixth husband. So what is this about? We need to kind of figure out. Experience. Though non octorite, we're in the made in Mariaja for lordings, Sithi, <coughs> twelve year was a Vaja, Fonka de God that is he tearing on leave, husbands at church door he have had peace. We've already been told that, that he's been married five times. But stop for just a moment to look at the reality. Since I was twelve years old, during that time, I, it was very common in the Middle Ages, for example, for women married before their first menses. Uh, medieval marriage was a hierarchical, dynastic thing. Something like this. Uh, it's a very, very different concept of marriage uh, from ours. Anyway, she says, I know because I've been married five times, but at this point, the text becomes controverted. And because the next line says, if ye so micta uh, have ye wedded bay, and all were worthy men in here to gray, why might I not be married that often? Because somebody told me otherwise. But May was told, certain, not long ago is, that sith the Christ in the went never but onus, to wedding in the con of Galilee, that be the same in Sampla, talk to me, that Enishota wedded bay, but onus. Now, do you follow that? This is a perfect example of medieval spiritual exegesis of the Bible. Jesus' only totally gratuitous, I mean, Jesus, most of them have some definite social point. That is, you're raising the dead, or you're healing a sick person, or you're feeding a hungry person. Well, I suppose if you absolutely have to have another drink of wine, this all social. But Jesus was invited to a wedding at Cana in Galilee, uh, and his mother was there. Uh, and the people ran out of wine, and his mother came up to him and said, what are you going to do about this? And uh, he miraculously turned a bunch of barrels of water into wine. Now, but the point of this is, the Bible only mentions Jesus going to one wedding. It doesn't say it's the only wedding that he ever went to, but it's the only story about his going to a wedding in the Bible. So how is this interpreted by whoever told talk to the wife of Bath? Since the Bible tells us that Jesus only went to one wedding, you ought to go to only one wedding, meaning you ought to be married 
uh, only once. That may be a peculiar way of uh, reading a text, but it is an allegorical interpretation that was very standard. But he doesn't stop. Herkna ek lo, what a sharp word for the knownest, Basida well, Jesu, God and man, said in reprave to the Samaritan, Thou hast had heave husbands, quote he, and that ilka man that now hath they is noctin husband. Thus said he, certain, but what he meant there be, uh, ye cannot say. Now, in a medieval Bible, you know, or in many other texts, but especially in the Bible, it was, all, it was often laid out sort of in the format that I've given you in this handout. That is, there was a textus, a text, which was illuminated by certain marginal commentary. It's not unlike what you have, where you have a text, and then at the bottom of the page, you have an editor who's telling you what the hard words mean and stuff like, like, like that. That was called the glossa, the gloss. And to glose meant to interpret the Bible in a spiritual or an allegorical way. But it's such a wonderful word. Think of the word gloss just for a second as a verb in English. It's one of the few words in English that has definitions with diametrically opposing meanings, right? What we usually mean is you're going to gloss over it. You're going to cover up the imperfection and the meaning, you know, and the kind of gloss paint and all that kind of stuff. This is the you're putting a surface credibility or something like that uh, on, onto it. The real deeper meaning is we're going to get to the meat of the matter. The gloss is going to explain what really is there. Now, I put it out for you in the opposite way. That is to say, the wife of Bath begins with two stories from the Bible, and I've given you the two stories. Uh, I told you the one about Jesus at the wedding in Galilee. What, both of them come from the, the uh, Gospel of St. John, which is of some significance, as I'll tell you uh, in a second. What is this second story, the story about the Samaritan woman? Well, Jesus is, the Samaritans, Jews hate Samaritans, don't have anything to do with them, think they're unclean and so on. This is very obvious from the Bible. Jew, Jesus and his friends are passing through Samaria, and they come to Jacob's well. Not another one like it, actual Jacob's well, still there, we're fighting about it like today over in, uh, in uh, Israel. Now, what about this well? Notice in the first place that well and bath mean the same thing, okay, as I said. Uh, and Jesus sends his guys into town to buy some food, and there is a woman at this well drawing water. Now, the well is a highly sexually charged spot in the Bible. <laughs> that is, this is where you pick up your wife if you're a patriarch or something like this. There is a certain amount of social realism, if you think about it, in this desert area, the place where you would have a public water supply would be like a crossroads, and it's where people would come. But if somebody coming to the story, the story in the Bible, that is to say, sees that there is a slight sexual charge to it. In fact, when his disciples come back, and they see that he's been talking to a woman whom he doesn't know, just having a private conversation with her, they are prepared to be scandalized. Anyway, uh, the, this woman is uh, uh, get, getting water, and Jesus says to her, "Give me, please, give me something to, uh, to, to, to drink, because I'm, I'm thirsty." And she says, "You don't seem to have anything to drink with, and you know I've got a bucket." She says, "Well, why don't, why don't you give me?" Drink? She says, "Don't you know I'm a Samaritan? Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans." And he says, "Well, he says that's." Uh, all going to be all over very soon. That's a very kind of trivial matter. I said, uh, besides, uh, if you knew who I was, <laughs> you for damn certain would give me a drink. Because whoever drinks of this water, pointing down into the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. 
whoever drinks of the water that I have to offer will find it a wellspring of eternal life. Now, he doesn't have any water. He just said, I need some water. I don't have a bucket. He must be speaking allegorically, metaphorically, poetically, but how did she take it? She's a literalist at first. She says, oh boy, I sure would like to have some of that water. Now, what he's talking about is grace, salvation, not real water. So he says, go and call your husband. She says, I don't have any husband. He says, damn right, this is the new translation. (laughs) Damn right you don't have any husband. You've had five husbands, and the guy that you're with, that you're shacked up with at the moment, is not even your husband. And then she says, really, something says, I can see that you are a prophet, okay? That's pretty good. Now, look what happens to the wife of that. She says, somebody told me all this stuff, uh, but I don't understand what it has to do with marriage. And what did Jesus mean when he said this stuff to the Samaritan woman? Uh, and that ill command that now hath they is knocking husband. Thus said, hey, certain, but what he meant there be, ye cannot think. Samaritan woman, verily, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Wife of Bath, overriding it only slightly. Duh, I don't get it. Now you see why she is some someday death. Because she is like that Samaritan woman at the beginning, can hear the, uh, the, 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 the literal, uh, literal text. But there's more to it than this, and it's rather beautiful. The wife of Bath is a stock character in middle, in, in medieval, and in fact, in ancient literature. <coughs> She's sometimes called the old whore, which is a sort of unpolite, impolite thing to call her. Uh, so you might want to call her the Vetchuva, the Lena, uh, or the Anus. All these three words mean the same thing in Latin. An old crone who acts as a bawd, that is to say, as a pimp an intermediary for a prostitute. If you go over here to the art museum, there's a wonderful Netherlandish painting on this scene. Shows one of these old women cackling types, you know, and she's pushing this handsome young woman at the man. That is what the story uh, is all about. Now the archetype of this, the archetype of this, is a character in Ovid, in one of his amores, and this is the reason I've given you this little uh, handout. Here he describes her. There is a certain whoso wishes to know a bawd, let him hear. A certain old dame there is by the name of Dipsass. Her name accords with fact. She never looks with sober eye upon black Memnon's mother. That is, she's never seen the sunrise in a sober condition. Her of the rosy cheeks. The word dipsass, which exists in our word dipsomania and and so on, clearly means a raging thirst. Now, I hope you see how almost preternaturally brilliant this is of Chaucer. What is the controlling theme here? Thirsty? His mother at the wedding, she says, you run out of wine, you got to get some more wine. We got the Samaritan woman at the well, but notice she's deceit a well. That Jesu, God and man, spack and repray for the Samaritan. She's deceit a well, just the way the wife of Bath comes from deceit a Bath. It's all coming together with an almost overwhelming and blinding uh, coherence. And so you have this ancient Ovidian character whose name means thirst. She's a thirsty, voracious woman, and the thirst is very clearly a sign of all sorts of other disordered appetites, sexual and so on. And he mixes it up here with the Bible, and you never even, you, you never even notice. It's the brilliant thing about if you read the description of the wife of Bath, you say that person had to exist. He must have met her. She's so realistic, and she is. But I can show her out of earlier texts. She's an expert on texts, but she is herself 
a, uh, a uh, text piece. But she has, she has introduced the theme, the theme that is going to preoccupy most of the prologue of the Canterbury Tales, and that is the idea of marriage. I hope you can have a good time talking about this or related things in some of your, in your, in your preceptorials. Uh, but she is a great expert from the point of view of experience about marriage, although she says she doesn't know anything from, from the theoretical or authoritative point of view. She has incredibly learned uh, uh, disc disquisition. I can't point out all the great stuff that is in here, but it takes one to know one is a great uh, principle in art as in life. And take a look at page 107. The wife of Bath is saying, you know, uh, why do you think God gave people sexual organs? Do you think it was just to go to the bathroom? That was one of the reasons. But it's not the principal reason, even. And I say that anything that God gave me, I'm going to use. Virgins are so great. Well, I do, too, because I went to the thousands of them, I suppose. But what if everybody was to remain a virgin for just 60 years? What would happen to virginity then? It would disappear from the face of the earth. Out of early, uh, early uh, uh, patristic uh, literature, Jesus, when he fed the 5,000 in one of his most famous uh, miracles, according to one of the texts, had some wheat bread and some barley bread. Everybody knows that barley bread is inferior, but if you've got 5,000 hungry people, uh, it'll work in a, in a pinch. So he says, let's call virgins that wheat bread. That's all right. Okay. We'll call the virgins the wheat bread. And the rest of us, we, those who are using our sexuality, we will call us barley bread. Famous all-star Fleming's all-star chapter of the Bible, Matthew 19. This young man comes up to Jesus. What shall I do to be perfect? Perfectus esse, he says. If you want to be perfect, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. What does the wife of Bath say? Because Jesus didn't say to everybody, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Hey, spack to him that would live perfectly. And lordings, bay your leave, that at ease. Okay? Okay, well, that's good. There's nothing wrong with this. She is sort of saying, I'm going to be happy with a gentleman C in this course. That will be okay with me just so long as I pass the course. Now, the real issue here, and it's a, it was a, it's a terrible issue in medieval theology, and it seems to me it's an issue that has, uh, <laughs> that has plagued Christianity throughout its, its, its history, has to do with the imposition of an ascetic attitude towards sexuality upon the entire religion. I don't find anything in the Hebrew Scriptures or in the Gospels, in my reading of this, that would account for the fact that in the early centuries of Christianity, the virtue par excellence that gets established is that of sexual virginity or chastity. But this is the line that is taught by the church, a male-dominated church, a clerical Latin-speaking church, a church that is all full of this kind of octoritas. Now, there's one person who recognizes this um, immediately, and this is at line 162. And the wife of Bath says, uh, well, she's great at, at quoting half lines from the Bible. Uh, St. Paul says, husbands, love your semicolon. Wives, obey your husband. Wife of Bath's quotation, St. Paul says, husbands, love your wife. Full, full stop, you know, this kind of thing. So there's all this kind of half quotation from the, from the uh, scriptures. Anyway, she says she's going to use her silly instrument uh, as, as often as she wants. And, uh, uh, and, and the partner gets very excited about this at line 163. Up this partner and that anon. Now, you've got to remember one thing about the partner. Uh, the partner or a partner, he has. No sexual organs. Poor Harry Bailey at the end of the partner's tale. He what he have the colons in me hand. You know, let cut of him. He will have help him carry. They shall be shrined in a hogger's herd. But unfortunately, 
and they have an either cut off even. It, he is the sign of the greatest possible sterility. And I want to ask you, you know, for all her sex talk and, uh, you know, uh, let joy abound and so forth and so on, it's impossible to imagine a bunch of little wives of bath on their little Shetland ponies kind of following her. She is nearly, she is sterile, in my opinion, as is the partner. And in fact, they're the Mr. and Mrs. Jack Spratt of the Canterbury Tales. Uh, in, in, uh, and I'll try to make this clearer too. Anyway, upstairs, during that, now Dom Quote, be God and be St. John. What? John! It's got to be John because all her examples come out of John. And when she says even that St. Mark has a certain text, she's getting that wrong. And people in the Middle Ages knew the Bible. And knew the thing. Upstairs the partner, and that anon, you've been a noble preacher in this cause. He was about to wed a weave. Alas, what should he be out of me flesh so dare? Yet he labor wed no weave to yer. What he says is, I was just about to get married. <laughs> yeah, sure. You were just about to get married. But he says, now you have convinced me. She has become, in other words, that autorite, that is her experience, is now going to be for him uh, an autorite. She says, shut up. Yeah. Abid, quote me tal is not begun. Nay, thou shalt drinken of another ton. You'll be drinking out of another barrel before I'm through. Now, that's at various times that you're going to get throughout here, throughout this thing. And the reason, I think, that you have them is that she's Dipsass, she's the Samaritan woman, she's, you know, at the uh, wedding at Cana of, of, of Galilee. This is the most remarkable literary performance I can imagine that is presented with this deeply vernacular character who is the most theologically learned character I've ever run into in all of medieval uh, literature, our wife of Bath. So we've got to be prepared as we move into her tale to see some possible distance between the letter and the spirit. And I promise you, you will not be disappointed.